I want to welcome you to Four Points. My name is Pastor Russ. I have the humble honor of being the senior pastor here. Uh, we are the kind of church in place that is waging war on merely being infatuated with Jesus. Uh, meaning, I, we, some of us have been saved long enough to get over it. And we want to be the kind of church and the kind of people that just are never going to get over it. Uh, we want to be the kind of people that climb up trees to get near Jesus, if that's what it takes. Uh, the kind of people that rip roofs off of buildings to get our friends to Jesus, if that's what it takes. The kind of people that push through crowds. The kind of people that aren't uh, consumed with just simply hearing stories about what God has done, but we want to live and experience the story of what God is doing today. And so I just want to welcome you here. We, we want to run as hard as we can uh, with Jesus. I'm not concerned with looking desperate. Uh, I am a desperate man that is desperately in need of Jesus, and I know that. And so if you're in a desperate place and in desperate need, I've got a good news. We have a good Savior uh, that wants to meet with you, love you, and walk with you through all of life's journey. So we're going to open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're in a series that's going to get us into the Christmas season. And we're studying a guy named David. There's more written about David in the Old Testament than anybody else that's mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, 66 chapters of the Old Testament were written by or written about the, the life and the legacy of King David. Uh, where we're at in the story is 1 Samuel chapter 16. What's happened, in case you're just jumping in with us, is the people of God were concerned over the future. Now, I know none of you worry or are concerned about the future, uh, so you not have uh, rice in your closet or emergency MREs in case it goes south. You're not in line at Walmart buying ammunition, but those people uh, maybe can relate to what the people in 1 Samuel were feeling. They saw a transition coming where Samuel wouldn't be in leadership. Samuel's sons were corrupt. They didn't want them to be in leadership. And so they wanted a king that God had promised all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy to rise up and intimidate other nations and look good in the Christmas parade so that they could have that king that would make them like everybody else. They wanted a good thing that was not within God's timing. And whenever you want good things that aren't within God's timing, they don't work out. And this is the lesson that the nation of Israel had to learn. How many of you love waiting on the Lord? Raise your hands. Exactly. Um, <coughs> I'm taking advantage of... All of y'all not wanting to participate in church, but that's where most of us are at. We're not signing up for, hey, let's wait a decade on that promise to be fulfilled. Let's trust God and not see that promise fulfilled for, I don't know, the next five years and have to wait in faithfulness. And so the people of God have experienced a bad king in Saul. The Spirit of God has rejected Saul. Samuel, the prophet, is dejected just before chapter 16 when the Lord comes and tells him to go and anoint a new king. And King David has been selected. So Saul rejected, Samuel dejected, David, uh, uh, what was the word? Because I can't remember it. Selected, there we go. It just came on my iPad. That's where we're at. Now, uh, many of us grew up here in church stories. Like you're familiar with many of the characters of the Bible. Noah built his ark out of Barky, barky, no one. Okay, praise God. Um, so maybe none of you heard about Noah growing up. Or Joseph in his coat of many colors. Oh, praise God. There's someone with me. Um, <clears throat> Father Abraham had many. Okay. And, and what can happen if we're not careful as we read through those stories is we can think that there is a class of people, a class of people who just are better than us, more spiritual than us, more ethical than us, who did great things for God. And then there's us who come from Woodruff, who come from <clears throat> a holler. And, and, and it's just a little... It's just a little bit different, and we're not like them. And, and maybe we'll try next year to be a little bit more ethical, uh, stop swearing so much because Jesus knows my heart, but he don't have my mouth yet. Praise God. Um, 
and, and, and we'll try and get there over time. But what I want to submit to you is that everybody that you read about that has anything good that we could say about them in the Old Testament has a God actively at work empowering them to be that person. In fact, all of those people are common, broken people like you and me apart from the Spirit of God. Let me prove it to you. First Samuel chapter 16, at the end of David being anointed before his brothers, he was the last pick of his father Jesse, the youngest, the runt, but we, he was good looking because that needed to be put in Scripture forever so that we would all know that David, being small and a runt, at least had good looks on his side. In verse 13, standing before Samuel, it says this, So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took a flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed, smeared that oil over David, uh, making a demarcation that he was set apart for a unique service and for a unique purpose in the kingdom of God. And the Spirit of the Lord, I want you to pay attention to this, verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Here's what I want you to see. Everything we read about what King David does next should be marked by what the scriptures have just told us in verse 13. Slaying giants, uh, wandering around in the wilderness and and depending on the provision of God, waiting on the Lord to exalt him into a position of leadership instead of taking it by force as the anointed king. Every victory, every battle that you see David fighting, his mighty men going and getting him water in a village that was protecting a well when they were thirsty, only to pour the water that they got from that village out as a drink offering God. Every great feat, every great story should be seen within light of the Holy Spirit coming upon David and empowering him to do what was not possible apart from the Spirit of God. Now, we read this throughout other Old Testament characters. One of my favorite ones was a guy named Samson. And many of us were told that Samson did lots of curls and crossfitted for a long time, got really strong, and was able to defend people. That's the Russ standard version. Uh, but but we're, we're told that Samuel was stronger than everybody else. And because he was strong, he was able to be a good judge over Israel. But he wasn't a real good judge. And he did a lot of wonky, messed up stuff. He ate honey out of the dead carcass of a lion, which was prohibited in the law. Uh, he married Delilah, who was a foreigner. And, you know, it didn't go so well. That's why the name Delilah sometimes gets a really bad rap. Even though that band saying, hey there, Delilah, it's still got a bad <laughs> connotation tied to it sometimes. But what was great about Samson was the Spirit of the Lord moment by moment empowered him to do some pretty incredible things. In fact, if you go all the way back to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 14 says this in verse 15. It says, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah, but he had done his curls that morning and ate his Wheaties. No, at that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. Everything that Samson does from that point forward should be marked by the Spirit of the Lord. Yet for many of us, we just think Samson was stronger than us, more righteous than us, a better person than us. No, no. Samson was Spirit-empowered. And as a result of being Spirit-empowered, he ripped the lion's jaw apart with his bare hands. It wasn't Samson's workout routine that prepared him to do such a feat. It was the very presence of God that empowered him to do what was impossible in and of himself. If you go forward a little bit further in Judges chapter 15, we're told that at this point the big enemy of the day was the Philistines. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came out shouting in triumph because they had bound Samson up. Now he had let them bound him up, but in that moment the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson. So everything that happens after this is not credit to Samson and his strength and his diet, but it's credit to the Spirit of God. 
The point is not we are, can be a great ethical person, try harder, do better, uh, don't do these things, don't smoke, chew, kiss girls that do, and, and, and do these things and you'll be a better version. None, none of that is in the Bible. That's actually anti-gospel. The gospel is we in and of ourselves cannot save ourselves, are not powerful enough to provide for ourselves. We need a savior. Some of you are like, Christians are just weak. No, everyone's weak. It's just Christians admit it. That's the difference. We see and understand our weakness. The great equalizer, the great humbling moment for many a person doesn't come into the end of their life when they realize no matter how strong they are, no matter how much money they've made, no matter how much success they've had, it doesn't matter when you're facing death. Steve Jobs, who denied Jesus to the very end of his life, was quoted in the last moments of having a moment right before he died where it's like he sat up, sprung up in his bed and said, oh, wow, and then he died. See, you and I were created in the image of God. We were created to worship God. And we will never find our purpose apart from the presence of God. You were never meant to live a life that was self-sufficient, that was defined by what you could in and of yourself do with your life. God's not looking for you to make something of yourself. Your father may be, but God, your heavenly father, is not asking you to make something of yourself. He's asking you to come to him, surrender to him, and allow him to do in you what you cannot do in and through your life. That's the beauty of what we have as followers of Jesus. We're not trying to follow written rule foundationally. We're trying to submit to a Savior who can empower us to be something we're not foundationally. If you have the Spirit, then you can overcome addiction. If you have the Spirit, then you can overcome sin. If you have the Spirit, then you can become a new creation in Christ Jesus. But self, self-gratification, self, self-promotion, self-transformation, it will not accomplish the work of God in your life. So Samson has moments in his life where the Spirit empowers Samson for a unique supernatural work. God empowered Samson by the Holy Spirit to defeat a lion and his enemies. But there was a coming and going of the Spirit of God on his life. We know that there was a moment where Samson went from being strong in God to weak. He went to, from being able to see and attack the enemy from being captive of the enemy. And he prayed, and God uniquely empowered him to push the pillars over. And in a tragic story, in a tragic end, God empowered Samson to do a good thing that helped out the nation of Israel. You see, something unique happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. For the first time, we don't read that the Spirit of God came upon someone and left, but that the Spirit of God came and stayed. King David, in verse 13, it says, the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day on. So his kingship would be different, not because he would be a better ethical king than Saul, although he probably was, not because he would be a better person than Saul, though he may have been. It will be different because it will be marked, not in moments by the Spirit of God, but in its entirety by God's Spirit. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit, not for a moment, but for a lifetime. Does David live a perfect life? Absolutely not. In fact, Psalm 5111, King David wrote this, Do not banish me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He had seen this happen with Saul. He had heard the stories of what happened with Samson and how Samson was empowered to do it. And here's what David recognizes. I don't deserve to live a life that is filled and marked by the Holy Spirit. My current behavior does not warrant the presence of God being active in my life. And so he pleads in humility before God that God would not do what he's done in the past and take his spirit from him. 
How many of you have had this moment? You don't feel worthy of carrying the presence of God, of being known as the people of God, and you've cried out. What I want to submit to you uh, today is what makes David known biblically as a man after God's own heart was not a perfect track record, but a repentant posture that he consistently had before God. Repentance doesn't make you weak. Repentance doesn't make you look like a bad Christian. Repentance is actually the normal Christian life. It's this recognition that apart from God, there is nothing of good that is coming out of me or within me that is in and of my own derivative. I need God to do in and through me what I cannot do in myself. When you become a follower of God, the Holy Spirit sets up residence in you. Can you wander from the presence of God and the purpose of God? Absolutely. Many of you have, many of you are, many of you will. Uh, When the Spirit of God comes into your life, can you grieve and resist the work of the Spirit and live in the flesh? Absolutely. Ephesians 4.30 warns us that we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but we're to live a life that's open-handed to the Spirit's leadership to lead our lives. We don't want to grieve the Spirit, yet many of us have, will, and in the future will continue to grieve the work of God. Do we fight off conviction and avoid repentance? even though the Spirit of God is within us? The answer is yes. Psalm 34 speaks to the fact that uh, the Lord has a heavy hand on his children when we're in sin because he won't tolerate sin's end in our lives. And so his hand's heavy upon us, leading us to conviction and repentance because the Lord disciplines those he loves. A sign of sonship is conviction. Now, many of us don't know the difference. We know the voice of condemnation because that's the voice that we heard echoed by maybe parental figures or authority figures in our life that told us if we didn't behave right, God wouldn't accept or receive us. But you didn't receive your salvation on the basis of good behavior. Therefore, how in the world are you going to lose it because you weren't a good girl or boy, or, 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 or good girl or boy this year? You see, the beauty of the gospel is that God offers this free gift of grace to whosoever would believe, not on the basis of performance, not on the basis of their ethnicity or their cultural background, not on the basis of their economic status, not on the basis of their past track record or the promise of their future track record. He offers his salvation to the whosoevers. All you got to be is an image bearer of God, and you've been created in God's image. You've been created to be in fellowship with God. And as a result of it, Jesus willingly laid down his life so that you and I could live in that fellowship that we We were cut off with from God by our sin, now as saints, not derived by our own sainthood, but by the sainthood given to us in Christ Jesus. And this is why we call it the gospel, and this is why we call it good news. You may wander, you may walk away, but faithful is he who began a good work in you to carry it to its completion, because God is good. Do we fight off conviction and repentance? Yes, but the Holy Spirit persists. Consider this. God doesn't lead. If you are in Christ Jesus, he doesn't lead you occasionally. God doesn't empower you infrequently. He is in you. He is with you. He is for you. And he will never leave or forsake you. One of my favorite texts that brings this idea to the forefront is Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, For God wanted them to know... The riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles who aren't ethnically born Jewish. Some people are like, I don't understand why the church would ever speak of ethnic tension. Well, the Bible speaks of ethnic tension a lot. The entire book of Romans, just to make sure you understand this really quickly, was written because the Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome. The Gentile Christians took their seats and they come back and they go, why are you sitting in my chair? In the entire letter to the Roman church is Paul communicating to them the need and the sufficiency of the gospel to be enough to take a diverse gathering and bring it together. 
Need I remind you that in the book of Acts, the first place that people were called Christian was in a multicultural gathering where they couldn't come up with an earthly term to define them. So don't, don't, don't get mad when the preacher reads the Bible to you and you get conviction. Conviction is God inviting you to a new way of living. Condemnation is what the enemy echoes in your life and is telling you you've done so much that you can't come home. Look, you may be prodigal, but your last name's still son. And the entire time the prodigal's away, his last name don't change. And some of you, look at me, you, you've run away. Your current behavior doesn't warrant conviction. It doesn't warrant grace. It doesn't warrant another opportunity. But God is still good, and he still offers that grace. And that's why he brings conviction, inviting you to a new way, even though you've been in the far-off place long ago. Know the difference. God convicts because he wants to bring you home. Saint condemns because he doesn't want you to know about the free gift of grace that you already have access to. And in Colossians, look what it says. It goes on to say this. The riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're either born into this or you're not born into it. This is not an ethnic religion that's passed down because of a culture or a background. No. This is the secret. Christ has come to live in you. He lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the way it says in another text. Paul would in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 say, be careful what you do with this body because it's no longer just your residence. It's not just your body. Instead, it belongs to Jesus. He has put his spirit in this clay jar called your flesh so that in it there will be a peculiar glory and a transformation that would take place in a life that has been covered by the blood of Jesus, surrendered to the leadership of the spirit of Jesus, and empowered to live in a different way because of the residency of the Spirit in your life. When is the last time, believer, follower of Jesus, when is the last time you stop to consider the potential of what Christ in you could do? What are you currently hesitating to do that if you were confident in the promise of Colossians 1.27, that in Christ you are accepted, you are loved, you are empowered, you are filled with the Spirit to be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, what, what are you hesitating to do that if you knew that was true of you, you would do it because you are marked and empowered by the Holy Spirit? When's the last time you consider Christ's potential in you? you see, church, what makes this great? It's not whether or not you think I'm preaching good or not. When some of you are like, well, thank God, because you're not. Praise God. It's, it's not good preaching. It's not good music. What makes church attractive is that there is a community that has been made an uncommon family because they all are uniquely filled and gifted by the Holy Spirit to be a witness to the nations around them. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to talk about the vision of where we're going as four points. If you're new here and you're like, well, have you been here forever? No, I've been here like a month, okay? Like I'm new, you're new, it's great, let's do this thing. So uh, here's the idea. Uh, we are not going to build a church on the platform of the popularity or celebrity of a pastor or a worship team. What will make this church great next year? I'm about to start preaching, so I'm rolling my sleeves up. What will make, what will make 
this church great next year is going to be the potential of where we can go when you take up the identity you have in Jesus Christ, using and being led by the power of the Holy Spirit to be the people of God, to be a witness of the goodness of God to the community around us. And our impact will not be measured by how well I preach, by how well the band sings, by how good the lights are, by how good our Sunday services are. It'll be you with Christ in you going on that identity into the nations, and that will determine the kind of impact we will have. What is the potential of Christ in you? Some of you are like, well, I'm in a marriage that's just broken and I got nothing left to give. Well, good news. At your marriage, according to Malachi, God put a a portion of his spirit in you. And if you're at your end, you have space for God to bring a miracle. A miracle is there's nothing in and of you that can change it. You got nothing left to to it that would make it transform or become different. And the good news is God put his spirit in you so that when you lean into the spirit of God, he can supply you with what you don't have to give the person that you said I do to before God what you've not been able to give them. I don't have mercy for them anymore. Have you gone to the spirit? I don't have grace for them anymore. Have you gone to the spirit? I don't think I can forgive them anymore. Have you gone to the spirit? Christ in you empowers you to get and give what you cannot get and give in and of yourself. That's the Christian life. It's marked by the Spirit. Some of you, you've got a job and you're just collecting a paycheck. Have you considered Christ in you? God's not in need of you being there to provide for you. He can provide for you in numerous ways. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. But have you considered the potential of what would happen if Christ in you and eternity came down in and through you and you began to represent a kingdom that is not of this world where you work? Imagine the potential of Christ in you. I know you're in a neighborhood and you picked that house because it was cute and had you know that Chip and Joanna vibe to it or whatever it was that made you get it. But I want to remind you that Christ lives in you and your house is an embassy and, is, and you are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. And in Acts chapter 17, it says, for he appointed the times and places for which we should live so that no one would be far from him. You can look it up later. I promise you it's what it says. And, and, and you have been appointed in that neighborhood so that Christ in you would be illuminated, so that you would be a light in the darkness and a hope to your neighborhood. If no one on your block knows that you're not, if no one on your block knows that you're Christian, are we really living the Christian life? Are we really being a witness to the gospel of Jesus? Are we really being a spirit-empowered person? people. My ambition, my hope is that you become everything in Christ Jesus that the scriptures say you can become, that you become an overcomer, that you become a person marked by the presence of God, empowered by the spirit of God to do something uncommon for the kingdom of God that will be a glory to him forever. Amen? Oh, man, you're preaching good. It's okay. They're asleep. They was watching the Gamecocks and they got hopeful again that they're going to beat Clemson (laughs) next week. They just being quiet till next week. But you keep preaching, pastor. You keep Sorry. Uh, So here's my question. If you were anointed by the Spirit to be king, what would be your first act? What would you do first? If you were the youngest of your family and you had been bullied, because let's just be honest, that's what being a younger sibling requires. It's, It's called building character. And you had to deal with all the jobs that your older brothers didn't want to do. And you, in verse 13, become king. What are you doing next? I would submit to you, apart from the Spirit, young King David wouldn't have done anything good next. But because of the Spirit, we see a Spirit-filled king that becomes a great servant. Look at the text with me, verse 14. Right on the hills of his anointing, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Saul was like, No, duh, I just said that in verse 14. Sorry. 
Y'all don't read the Bible that way sometimes? You're like, it just said that. Why well, they got to repeat? Let, let us find a good musician to play the harp whenever the tormenting spirit troubles you. He will play soothing music like Kenny G, praise God, and you will soon be well again. All right, Saul said, find me someone who plays well and bring him here. Verse 18, one of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's son from Bethlehem is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, has good judgment. He is also, which I have no clue what this has to do with being a good musician, a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. I believe the Lord is a God of humor and wanted that to be noted in there since everyone's good looking. Uh, Joseph was good looking. That's noted in the scripture. Saul was good looking. That's noted in the scripture. Solomon, apparently he was ugly. It doesn't say anything good <laughs> about him. So Saul's, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse responded, sending David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey loaded with bread and a wineskin full of wine. So David went to Saul and began, okay, your first act as king is serving the bum that couldn't get the job done. You've got promise. You've got potential you're going somewhere, and here is a guy sitting in your seat. He's living in your house, and you're going to go help him finish better than he would finish if he didn't have you. So this is the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. And there's a lesson I learned a long time ago. I, a long time ago, met Jesus in college and felt God call me into ministry, but the phone didn't ring with opportunities for me to stand on platforms and preach the Bible. So instead, I would write sermons that I didn't know where they were ever or if they were ever going to get to be preached. I got an internship at a really small church called New Spring. That was a joke. And I was interning under the pastor, so it was a big deal. I was going places. And I showed up the first day of my internships thinking I would be in a meeting, and they would look, and they would say, surely the word of the Lord is in you. And you should preach this Sunday. I used to sit in churches every single week. And I would think, this is the day where the pastor's going to die in the pulpit. They're going to need someone to preach. The Shekinah of God's going to shine on me. And it's going to be my moment. Because I'm called. Don't act like you haven't wished someone else would be dead that was blocking you from something you wanted. <clears throat> and so I would sit there thinking, any, any day now, any minute now. So I showed up the first day of my internship. And guess what they did? I, I didn't go into a meeting with the pastor I wasn't in any kind of creative meeting around the service. I, 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 I went and loaded up some chairs that they had bought from another church in a hot, like, box van. And in 106% humidity, I loaded up chairs to the glory of God because I was going places. I brought those chairs back and I set them up in an auditorium thinking surely this is the moment where the Shekinah, the, the glory of God would shine on me and they would see it and they go, you should preach to the youth tonight. But no, I set up chairs for someone else to preach to the teenagers and I served in obscurity. I did data entry. I typed in prayer requests after Sunday and that church has like a million people that were really jacked up, that really needed Jesus. And so there was a lot of prayer requests. Pray for my cat. I can't tell you how many times I pray for kittens. Like, there's a lot of them blessed, apparently. It's probably why Clemson won a national title, because I may have slipped in. And, Lord, while we're on the subject of kittens, could we pray for the tigers that you would? He answers prayers. I'm just saying, maybe you Gamecock fans should try. Sprinkle it in. <laughs> apparently, y'all aren't praying hard enough. Just, just being honest. Um, so so I, I was in obscurity. No, nothing was there. And here, here's what I learned. If you're going to make it in authority, you've got to be under authority. 
And if you can't learn to be under authority, you won't make it in authority long. I wrote it down for you in the notes. If you can't be under authority, you will never last in authority. You see, God will often ask you to serve before he puts you on a platform. And if you can't serve God off the platform, don't expect to be a servant when you get on the platform. You see, I had to develop an attitude of service down here before God ever gave me an up here. Because if he didn't teach me a heart of service and make it about him there, I would have made it about me here. Does this make sense? Some of you, you've got great potential. God's got a great call on your life. But you've not yet learned how to serve under the person that maybe eventually you'll replace. And until you learn that lesson, God's not going to elevate your platform. Now, you, through good effort and works, may bounce around jobs every 18 to 24 to 36 months. And you may build something of yourself, but it won't be God-glorifying. It won't be something that gives God great glory because at the end of the day, it'll be what your hands build, not what the hands of God built through your hands. Can you be under authority? Because if you can't be under authority, I doubt that you'll last in authority. Many a friend of mine who could preach way better than I ever preached no longer are preaching anywhere because they had a quick, a quick rise and a, and, a, and a very quick crash and fade. Can you be under authority? Now, here's what I want you to see. David didn't serve Saul in this one instance and then, you know, get to kingly duties. Instead, he developed a, a lifestyle of service. If you go to chapter 17, verses 13 to 19, his three older brothers are off serving uh, Saul in his army. The Philistines are continuing to threat the army of God. And uh, you probably are familiar with the story that we're almost going to get to today. We saved it so that you would have to come back next week. It's called a cliffhanger. We learned it from TV shows. Verse 13. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shemaiah, or Shammah is what it says in some translations, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son of David's three oldest brothers who stayed with Saul's army. But David went back and forth so he could help his father who forgot him, who overlooked him, who doubted him. He's still serving him. That's humility. David went back and forth so he could help his father uh, with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, meanwhile, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion that we know as Goliath strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain, these ten loaves of bread, and carry them quickly to your brothers. And give these ten cuts of cheese. And we're like, why were y'all serving cheese at 10.30 in the morning? Well, we're going to explain it. Give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Eli, just in case you're wondering, fighting against the Philistines. And let's be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of fighting going on. There was a whole lot of cowering. There was a whole lot of hiding. There was a whole lot of, oh God, where are you? Jesus, take the wheel. Going on. And David, in service to his father, in service to his brothers, in service to their commanders, shows up with some bread and cheese. The day David became a household name, he was simply serving faithfully those around him. You never get to a giant if you don't first bring some cheese. Some of y'all want to do great things. You, you want to see God move in a powerful way, yet you're looking for a spotlight instead of a towel. Jesus took the towel on and washed his disciples' feet before the spotlight was ever cast on them from the nation's view of him being the Savior. He walked the path of a servant before 
we ever recognized him as a savior. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. In fact, Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Many of you want greatness, but you don't want service. And within the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you've got to be the least, and the least are servant of all. If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to serve like Jesus. And many of you, you want the spotlight of Jesus, but not the service of Jesus, not the cross of Jesus, which means you're not going to actually be a part of his kingdom in the life that you live and in the legacy that you leave. I want more for you than that. I want you to live a life that gives glory and honor and praise to something that will echo in eternity. It doesn't come through a spotlight of pounding your chest and your self-sufficiency, looking at the world and getting as much attention, praise, and worship as you can. It comes from you decreasing. It comes from you becoming less. It comes from you surrendering to Jesus. David, serving his brothers, brings the cheese. And as a result of it, he gets to drop the giant. He brings the cheese, and then as a result of it, he gets to drop the giant. The takeaway if you want to drop giants, you will often have to first bring the cheese. Now, if you want to live a great life, let me just remind you that the Bible's made it very clear and simple to know what a great life looks like. There's two things in the New Testament called great. The great commandment and the great commission. So if God's standard matters to you and you want to be great in God's economy, then you probably should pay attention to the two things he calls great. The great commandment is where the Lord says, uh, you should love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, God comes up to Jesus and says, which of the Ten Commandments is most important? Here's what's great about it. He says, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is a summation of commandments one to five. He then says, love your neighbor as yourself. That is a summation of commandments six through ten. What does Jesus say? All of them matter. But if you want to know how you do this, you start with loving God. Not in an apathetic or indifferent way, but in a zealous, overwhelming way. Like the praise you give your football team when they cross the goal line, that is the praise times 10 that you give him if you love him with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not word or lip service. It's soul service. It's from the very core of who you are. You give him his worth every day and in every moment for what he is in your life. Now, I know that not all of us are living that way, and let me be clear. None of us are living that way. Moment to moment, we get carnal to spiritual. We over-spiritualize things that shouldn't be over-spiritualized. We get mad at pastors being barefoot when we're actually just being biblically obedient because it's holy ground I'm preaching. And you're sitting here offended because of some toes. And have to, but but you're gonna, you're going to walk out talking about how no one should work on Sunday and go to a restaurant where you're going to undertip somebody that's having to work so you can go to that restaurant. But let's not get up in the spirit of religion up in this house. We want to we look the part, but we wanna, don't want to lay down our life. We don't want that sacrificial, unseen, unrecognized, in obscurity service. But my point is, if you don't start in the obscure places serving God, then you're not going to see God elevate you to the places where you can do great work and great impact for God. <laughs> so you start with the great commandment. You, you love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you do that, you'll find yourself having enough to love your neighbor. Isn't that amazing? If God is everything, you all of a sudden have everything you need to be a better parent, a better spouse, a better coworker, a better boss, a better leader. But if God isn't everything, then you constantly are going to find yourself in need of stuff that you're not finding in and of yourself to give those places in relationships. 
I mean, this is the beauty of it. Because I am loved, I can be loving to everyone around me because I don't need them to love me back to love them because I've been loved with a love that won't quit, a love that's covenantal, a love that's promised and marked by the blood of Jesus and is sealed by the Spirit of God within me. So because I'm loved, I can love everyone when I love the Lord with my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and it overflows into my neighbor. But, but because I've been accepted, I don't have to look for approval from people because I've already been approved by God. And if I'm approved by God, I can be loving and compassionate and welcoming to everybody, no matter what their background is, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, I can forgive because I've been forgiven. And if Jesus can forgive me, even though I've been wronged by other people, I can trust that his blood is enough to forgive them or his judgment will be where he sets it right should they not bend their knee before him. Man, it's good when you know that you are loved by God and that that love flows into you, you then have the opportunity to love your neighbors yourself. Now, why does he give us the great commandment before he gives us the great commission? Because there are a lot of us who know the right thing to do, but we have the worst attitude in doing it. So though the service is good, it's repugnant because of the deliverer of the service. Many of you have had a good restaurant experience where the food on the plate was good, but the service was so bad it became B+. So he gives us the great commandment before he gives us the great commission. Because you, Before you go out representing him, don't get it twisted. You're not going out because he needs you. You're going out because you get to. You're going out because he loves you, and that love is something you can't keep within you. And that leads you to go into all nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It it completely changes. My motivation is my love for God that leads me to a service of people so that we can see this mission that we could not do apart from the Spirit fulfilled. And that's that every nation would hear, see, and know of the gospel of Jesus. It's an amazing story. Matthew 28, when they're standing there, there's some people that doubted, just like some of you. Uh, they, they doubted, even though they saw Jesus raised from the dead, they doubted because they still had questions. They doubted because it was hard to fathom that they were actually seeing what they were seeing. A man who was crucified, who had gone through a Roman crucifixion, standing in front of them days later, risen from the dead. And what's amazing about God, what's amazing about Jesus, is it knows that they doubted, but it doesn't know that those doubts separated them from being commissioned. God commissions doubters. That's good news for you. Here's what's great. David came and was a greater king because he was a spirit-filled servant king. Not because he was better ethically or morally. He was spirit-filled and a servant. And Jesus came so that you would be spirit-filled servant people. And he came later after David as the greater David. In Isaiah, it was prophesied. In Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verses 1 to 4, it says, Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch, bearing fruit from the old root. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Seven, eight hundred years before Jesus comes, before the starry night in the backwoods of Bethlehem, this prophecy called God's shot, and Satan couldn't do nothing about it. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might and the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It would go on to say that when this king comes, the greater king, the greater spirit-filled servant king who lived life by the spirit so that we would know what life in the spirit would look like after him. It says that in his leadership, his government will only increase, his authority will only grow. So we live as kingdom citizens in a growing kingdom that will not fade away. Everything else will fade away in this life. But the kingdom of God and the word of God, it will last forever. So in just a few seconds, there's some people that have been marked by the spirit of God that are going to come before you and be baptized. And we're going to lose our minds in here. Because we don't golf clap eternity. No, no, no. Yeah, see, some of y'all, you're not, you're not with me yet. 
I, I saw it, you know, you're like, oh, is this where we can, oh, yes, like we're going to lose our mind. Why? Because they are saying to you that before they got in this tank, they put their faith in Jesus. And Jesus promised that if you come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins, that he can apply to you through faith a salvation that, that will stick and transform you. It will not be taken away from you. And they've done that. And they're coming before you to say, we are now marked by the Spirit of God to be servants of God. We're filled with the Spirit of God to be servants of God. And they want to do that in front of you because we want to celebrate that as the people of God as we welcome them into the family of God together. So in this next song, we're going to stand and they're going to go out and get changed. Now here's the deal. Some of you are hard-headed and that's why I keep talking. So you're like, why do preachers keep preaching? Because there's hard-headed people. That's why we keep preaching. And you know the Lord has got a call on your life. You know the Lord is wanting you to take steps of obedience. And you want something grandiose and you don't want to start simple. For some of you, look, you gave your life to Jesus and you've still never been faithful to go forward in believer's baptism since then. Well, here's the good news. At four points, we come prepared for knuckleheads. Because I'm the chief of the knuckleheads. So we already have t-shirts and shorts. We got towels stacked up. You can look good at whatever meat and three restaurant you're going to go to and be obedient to what God is asking you to do today and get baptized. We call it spontaneous baptism. It's what happens after you've given your life to Jesus. And if that's the next step that you need to take as these people are going to get changed, we'd invite you to go out with them. Zach, right in the back, wave your arm. Zach, he's a handsome man. He's available. He's on the market, ladies, right there. Woo! Look at him, man of God. Man, he, he, he would love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Kelsey's back there. She'd love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Davin, another eligible bachelor. If you love chocolate chip pizza, you should love Davin. But he wants to talk to you about Jesus. We're right here helping you take whatever next step you need to take. So whether that's surrendering your life to Jesus, whether that's getting baptized today, whether that's receiving prayer, we want to serve you. We'll be here at the altar as well. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. Let's get ready to celebrate.